Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 62 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. Today I have the pleasure of talking to Hannah's mom, another Hannah's mom, different from the one I talked to just a few weeks ago. This Hannah died seven months ago, unexpectedly. From the outside, I think that Farah gives the impression that she is doing really well. I'm sure her family and friends are amazed at all that she is able to do. She's a professional woman. She's strong. She was in the military for years. And I think from the outside, she's just doing great. And in so many ways, she really is doing great. But as you hear her share her story, not everything is great. And on the inside, she feels just as broken as all of the rest of us, even though on the outside, she seems so put together. I know over the past two years, I have found it difficult to ask for help. Many of us find it difficult to ask for help. We just wish we could wear a sign saying, I'm grieving, please help me. I think that's what Farah needs in some ways. She needs people to just do things for her to offer to go to the store, to make dinner for the family. Just the little things that we find so difficult in those months after a loss. This really is a lesson for us to learn today that you can't just look at someone from the outside and know how they're doing. You can't look at someone and assume everything's okay. Just go out of your way, ask if they need help, And if you are that person, ask for help. It's so hard to do. I know it's hard to do, but do it anyway. One more reminder for the month of November, all of the donations to the Always Annie's Mom charity will go to help refurbish the cabins at Stony Lake Camp. You can donate by going to my Facebook page or just on andysmom.com under donate. So I appreciate any donation we can get. For now, enjoy Hannah's mom. Thank you so much, Farah, for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Thank you. I've been looking for this as well. So you are Hannah's mom, the second Hannah's mom from Arkansas yeah. that I have had in like three weeks now. So <laughs> this is a little bit unusual. Uh, so I guess tell us about this Hannah from Arkansas, uh, Hannah Christine. Yeah, Hannah Christine. She actually, uh, she was born in Georgia. Her father and I were both stationed at Fort Stewart um, on active duty in the Army at the time that she was born. So she she grew up a military brat. Um, Her dad retired with, I think, almost 30 years in the military. Wow. Um, and in fact, she was living in Savannah, um, permanently, but here in Arkansas visiting, uh, when she passed, but Hannah was the roly poliest baby you've ever seen. Uh, she was one of those kids that looked like she had the rubber bands around her wrist and her ankles because she was just so round. Uh, she was a 30 pound one-year-old. Oh, my word. (laughs) And uh, for the most part, just a really um, easygoing kid. She kind of had to roll with the punches of two active duty military parents. Uh, Thankfully, 
my grandmother was just four hours away in Atlanta. So there were a few times throughout her early years um, before she was three where she would spend at one time three months with my grandma. So wow. they had a really special relationship too. Um, she, throughout, you know, we had, we had a bunch of moves and when we finally settled in uh, Illinois for a while outside of the Chicago suburbs, she had kind of developed into a painfully shy um, young lady. And this was like six, seven, eight. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually, at that time, I sought out some counseling because she was starting a new school and I wasn't sure I was going to be able to get her on the school bus. Wow. Um, but that was really short lived uh, because by the time she was eight, eight years old, she was fearlessly flying as an unaccompanied minor uh, between Illinois and Georgia to visit her father. Uh, she got to a point where she absolutely had favorite airports because she knew who had the Chick-fil-A and who had the Panda <laughs> Express. And so she would oftentimes try to plan her flights based on where the layover was going to land her so she could eat her favorite foods. Um, oh, fun. She, she is uh, one of five. Um, my husband and I are a blended family. And she's kind of smack dab in the middle. He has um, a 29-year-old, a 26-year-old. Um, Sarah is my husband's uh, 20, now 21-year-old. And Hannah is my 20-year-old. And then we have an ours, who is her 14-year-old younger sister. So wow. we blended families when Hannah was three years old. And she is, excuse me, uh, six months older than Sarah. So she and Sarah grew up as, you know, our 10 year olds, our nine year olds. And most people assumed we had twins and we would have to explain the six month age difference and that, you know, his, yes. mine and ours <laughs> trajectory of that. Um, and she just super easygoing, didn't take anything really too seriously. A very good student. I never she was not someone I ever had to worry about academically. She just was very self-motivated in that respect. She hated any kind of team sports participation. We tried soccer for years <laughs> and that was just an epic failure. So, you know, when they get to a certain age, you just give up trying to force the mandatory fund and realize that your child's just not ever going to be the star athlete that maybe you would want them to be. When she was 15, I started my graduate program, and that was also about the same time she decided she was going to do the things that 15-year-olds do. In fact, my very first big test uh, in, in graduate school, I I had left a little bit later than usual and realized that instead of getting on the bus, she was walking around the block to circle back to the house and skip school. Oh, no. So that kind of led to, you know, me realizing she was skipping school. She was sneaking out. She was doing those rebellious things that that teenagers do. And we struggled with that for months and months, and she just was not willing to make any different choices in her life or her friend group. At this time, her dad, who lived in Georgia still, uh, was a stay-at-home dad. Um, he and his wife have a, a disabled son, and so he was full-time dad, and I was at a crossroads. I could either quit my graduate program um, and give her what was going to really feel like full-time supervision, or I could send her to live with her dad. Mm -hmm. uh, and after a whole lot of heartbreaking deliberation, that is what I decided. Uh, I think I, I may have made that decision kind of unilaterally, but I wasn't arrogant enough to think that her father couldn't do a a good job parenting as well. And so sure. I kind of feel like it was, it was his turn to do the full time. Um, up until that point, 
They saw each other usually on average twice a year for a week at a time during holidays and summer break. And so she left in between her sophomore and junior year of high school and went to live with her dad full time in Georgia. Mm -hmm. We had a challenging relationship after that. She really liked to tell me that I sent her away because she was bad. So that was, that was really hard. Uh, it was hard to hear. And it, it wasn't the case at all. I just, you know, and so many of us as mothers, we face these decisions where we have to decide, you know, between career aspirations and family things. And had her father not been in a situation where he was a stay-at-home parent at that time, I probably would have dropped out of my graduate program. And I probably would have delayed those aspirations until I had gotten her to college or launched on her own. Well, it sounds like she really did need to get out of that friend environment that she was in, though. And so a clean break from that is often so helpful. Right. You know, I, I as a pediatrician, I talk to parents about that a lot. And that can be when they get more independent and older like that, it can be really impossible for you to have any control into separating them from these you know, influences that are not helping. So for her to have an opportunity for a clean break to go live with someone who loved her and cared for her is really what a lot of parents wish they could do, right? I mean, other parents choose sending them away to like military school or something like that in order to have that same kind of results. So I think it was a very brave decision on your part and a very wise decision. And I wouldn't really even think about it as, you know, choosing yourself. You were trying to choose a better life for her. Right. We Mm -hmm. we were. And we had had experience with this. Um, My husband's oldest had had some struggles and she moved out of her mother's house and and had to move in with us when she had just six weeks of, of high school left. So Mm-hmm. We've and, and that's what we tell. I have always told our kids. You know, you see the mistakes that your older siblings are making, and you see how we respond. So you know that this is always a possibility. Um, but she she settled in in Georgia, and um, she just absolutely loved being time with her half brother. He has Prater Willie syndrome, so he's not ever going to live independently. But he is just you know, like so many kids that that have those challenges. He's just this loving, you know, smile Mm -hmm. from ear to ear, joy to be around. So Hannah finished up high school um, and then she gave college a try and it just was not her thing. Um, She did three semesters and said, mom, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't enjoy what I'm doing. And Uh, At this point, she was working in the hospitality industry. She liked to waitress. And she said, I want to do this full time for a while. And she was living completely independently at the time. She had an apartment. She had roommates. She had a car. She was doing, you know, so at 20, if you are out in the world making your way and and you don't need me to support that, you get to make those decisions. Sure, sure. So she was just kind of trying to figure out, you know, as most 20 year olds do, what this world is all about and what her place was going to be in it. And she, she loved, you know, like, like most young people loved her friends and she had a a cat named Lilo who I cannot even tell you how many photos I got in a week of her cat. She was absolutely obsessed and just, you know, a really hard worker. She would work two to three jobs, um, whatever she could to maximize her time and, and would text me if she had a great day where she got a big tip. And, you know, when people yeah. told her she was a great, great waitress, she really enjoyed that feedback. And your relationship was, sounds like it was better at this point then. It was. We actually, um, Last year, we were in Savannah. We have some neighbors here in Arkansas that hadn't been in 30 years. And I had lived there for almost seven years when I was in the military and Hannah was still there. So we planned a trip, a four-day trip. Unfortunately, the second day of the trip, we were involved 
in a boat accident and my husband, um, he broke his back. Oh no. So the rest of our stay, um, was in the hospital, but Hannah was pivotal. I mean, she would run me to and from the hospital. She drove me around to pick up his prescriptions and find a walker prior to discharge. She just was amazing. Um, mm -hmm. In between, you know, the scary bad thing, she took me to her apartment because she wanted me to see where she lived and she wanted me to meet her cat. And, and she was just so proud of the space that they had created. Mm -hmm. It was also this trip that she said to me, you know, mom, I know now that you weren't punishing me by sending me to live with dad, that you were doing what was best for me. And have you not done that, I wouldn't have the great relationship I have now with my dad and with his wife and with my brother. Mm -hmm. so. Oh, what a blessing to yeah. have gotten that from her. Yeah. So mm -hmm. she was just getting to that point where we could be friends and, right. you know, start to enjoy each other's company on a, on a different way, you know, as, as your kids get older, the relationships change. And we were, we were coming out of that, you know, everything mm -hmm. that you say as a parent is wrong to the, oh, maybe my mom does know a thing or two. Um, mm -hmm. It felt really good. I bet that did. Yeah. So, and then she was here for Thanksgiving last year. So, I mean, she was really at a good place with everybody at that time. So why don't you go ahead and tell us now what happened to Hannah? So when Hannah went to live with her dad, um, so she was 15 right before her 16th birthday, her, her father, um, because of their, their son and his challenges, they, um, they had a baby monitor upstairs in Michael's room, you know, probably for far longer than, than most of us would have with our children. And they heard something on it one afternoon. They thought it was Michael. Um, and it was actually Hannah uh, in the midst of a seizure. And so up until that time, as far as we knew, she hadn't had any seizures. Mm -hmm. However, at this time, her seizures were nocturnal. So when she was sleeping, Mm -hmm. uh, and she slept alone. You know, it wasn't something that had ever happened on vacation or when she was sharing the bed with one of her siblings, you know, so that she had some, a, a few episodes of intractable seizures where she actually ended up hospitalized for two or three days at a time. You know, they do all the MRI imaging, they do all the brain studies, and we were just repeatedly told that these were most likely, you know, related to puberty and most likely something that she would grow out of. Mm -hmm. um, and again, she was living at her dad's, so I didn't have a whole lot of access to the medical information and, and my ex-husband and his wife are, are smart, smart sharp people. I mean, she's a, she's a pharmacist. So I really didn't feel like that was something I needed to micromanage. Mm -hmm. um, and Hannah wasn't, it wasn't something she ever wanted to talk about. Again, they were, they were nocturnal in nature. So it didn't, it didn't bother her. It wasn't as if she was going to have a seizure at school. Um, right. and so really what she worried about most is how it was going to affect her driving ability. Right. If right. That's what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She, she was put on, started on medication um, and sometimes would go six months at a time without a seizure. And uh, at 18, she didn't want anyone coming to the neurologist with her anymore. Um, sure. And anytime I would ask her about it, you know, how, how are your seizures? Oh, they're good. I'm on medication. I'm taking my medication. And, and that was that. So it wasn't really something that, that she wanted to talk about. Um, in fact, until she died, there were very few people that even knew she had epilepsy. In fact, I, for years, didn't even use that word. I would simply say she has a seizure disorder. Mm -hmm. um, just because to me that it, it seemed different, like 
it just, I, I, I was in a bit of denial about it too, I suspect. Well, it's different, I think, when it's only happening at night and it do- isn't disrupting your day-to-day life when you don't see them, because right. you don't really see them, yeah. that it can make it seem less real, I think. Right. So mm-hmm. I did notice when she was here at Thanksgiving, she was having kind of some absence type seizure activity where all of a sudden, I don't know where she's at. And she's like, just she's standing in front of me, but she's not She's yeah. not making sense and she's doing this tick-like behavior, you know, for instance, this time she kept walking in and out of my kitchen pantry repeatedly. Uh, so that was new to me at Thanksgiving and I hadn't seen that before. And, you know, I asked her about it and it was, again, still this kind of level of denial and I've got an appointment with my neurologist soon. And at this point, they had changed her medication again. She'd previously been on Keppra. She had been switched to Lamictal and that was it. COVID happened. And so she found herself unemployed as most in the hospitality industry did. Mm-hmm. And my, my grandmother, who was, who was my person, um, she died the 11th of April. Wow. I knew that that was coming. Um, April historically now is a really bad month for my family. Uh, April 22nd of 2019, my uncle died in a plane crash. He was the pilot and it was, uh, he had five passengers on board and, and nobody survived. And I knew when that happened that my grandmother just wasn't going to make it a year. And, and sure enough, she died on April 11th. So Hannah called me and she was very sad about Nana's death and asked if she could come home. And I was really hesitant because Georgia was still a shelter in place state at that time. Um, But when your kid is sad because her Nana died and she wants to come home, you know, you, you eventually buy that plane ticket. So Mm -hmm. Uh, she wanted to come home for two weeks. She got here on a Thursday. My husband's daughter, Sarah and Abigail were the ones that went to the airport to pick her up. By the time I got home from work, the girls had decided we were going to have sushi takeout for dinner. And we just kind of fell into the routine that we do. I mean, she was a, she was a visitor, but she wasn't, you know, when you're, when your kid comes home, it was, uh, it was a Tuesday afternoon, uh, about 12, 12.30. I was still working at this time, but we were doing limited patient visits in the clinic that I work in. So I saw patients in the morning, and then in the afternoon, I was uh, supposed to be out front screening patients and techie, checking temperatures as people came into the clinic. Abby and Sarah called me at about 12.30, um, and told me they were scared that they'd been banging on the bedroom door of the room that Hannah was in and that she didn't answer. And I'm at work and I'm slightly annoyed. And I said, well, did you go in there? And they both told me no. Uh, I, they said they were scared. So it was almost as if they, they sensed uh, that something wasn't right. I was insistent that they needed to get into the room. And if Hannah was unresponsive, they needed to call 911. I then got in my car. It's about eight minutes from my clinic to my house. At that time, the girls had, they were, they were very brave. They had been on, on the phone with the 911 dispatcher. Um, she had them get Hannah off the bed and onto the floor and was trying to encourage them to start CPR, but neither of, I mean, this is a, a 20-year-old and a 14-year-old, and it was well beyond the scope. So that was about the time that I got home. I beat EMS to the house, and uh, I knew as soon as I saw her that she was gone. But you do anything and everything, you know, that, that you can think of. I have been in the medical field since, uh, since 1997, And I have had to be CPR certified the entire time. And the only time I've ever done chest compressions on a person was my daughter. Yeah. 
And so that was, that was hard. And, and the things that you don't know, because if you've only ever done it on dummies, you start moving air and you think something's happening, yeah. uh, but it's not. And so EMS eventually uh, showed up and, and then that was, that was that. It took me a, a couple of days to, to even begin to try to figure out what had happened. Surprisingly, the, the coroner did not deem an autopsy necessary, which I just thought was crazy. A 20-year-old wow. dies at home. And, and so I had to make some really early decisions. You know, did I want a private, you know, all these questions because right. she did die here at home, but they couldn't pronounce her. So she still had to be transported to a hospital and we still had to go to the hospital. And I still remember, I told anybody and everyone, every first responder, every police officer, I told them her name. And so I just, I was so upset when I got to the hospital and they had listed her as, as Jane Doe. Oh. So, you know, it's those little things that, that just kind of stick with you. Right. <clears throat> right. But yeah. So it's just horrible. Yeah, it was. Um, but it took me a couple of days until I was at a point that I was ready to, to even try to think about what had happened. Because to be honest, I had no idea that epilepsy um, could be fatal. I had yeah. never before heard of something called sudden unexpected death in epilepsy or SUDEP for short. Mm -hmm. uh, my husband, who's a physician, he's been in practice over 30 years and he had never heard of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, you know, more people know what it is now because unfortunately um, there was a Disney star, uh, Cameron Boyce, who that was his cause of death, I think, um, a little over a year ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there's a little bit more awareness with that. And, and you're my second mom, actually. Yeah. That's on with that, with the, their child died from the same exact way. So. Well, the, the numbers are, are a little bit, it's scary. Uh, one in 1,000 adults with epilepsy will die from SUDEP. Um, it actually kills more than SIDS kills infants. Wow. Um, and yet we, we just don't know a whole lot about it. One of the things I did very early on is I got her enrolled in the North American SUDEP registry. It's just a big research registry of information. You know, you, you give them access to all of your child's uh, medical records and imagings, and they do a pretty comprehensive interview uh, with the family member, which was me in this case and one of the questions they ask is had anyone ever spoken to you previously you know a neurologist or a health professional about SUDEP and if they hadn't do you wish they had mm -hmm. and that was a really tough question for me because it really is kind of a, a Russian roulette they don't know what causes it they don't know how to prevent it and oftentimes when these patients are found very early on, they don't respond to resuscitative measures. Mm -hmm. So so then it, you wonder if you would have just been living in fear all of these years and really not changed the outcome at all. Right. And, mm -hmm. and, and I would have, you know, it would have been really, really hard for me to let her live any kind of an independent life. And that was one thing. She was so proud of the life that she had made for herself. Right. And I, I truthfully, I expected uh, when we got her toxicology report back that it would show that she hadn't been taking her seizure medication because she's 20 and thought she was invincible, but that was not the case at all. So she'd been taking her medication and, and doing what she was supposed to do. Just such a tragic, horrible story, mm -hmm. really. Yeah. Tell me about what that was like afterwards. I, I feel like especially with COVID and all of that going 
on at the same time. Yeah, that was. What was that? Yeah. So here in Arkansas, we were not a shelter at home state. Um, Okay. So, you know, of course, I always had the option of postponing. Really and truly, my first thought, like that initial, I, I just thought I needed to get her home to Georgia. Mm-hmm. Hannah's stepmom, she is, um, she's lived in Georgia, I think, pretty much her whole life and, and has family there. And my ex-husband, despite being in the military, I think he's been there for well over 20-some years now. So I just assumed that they would maybe have a plan or a place um, in Georgia. And so that was that was my plan. Um, again, we had some logistical things. Because the coroner did not deem an autopsy necessary, I had to arrange for a private autopsy, which meant Hannah had to leave. I'm up in the north corner of Arkansas. She had to be transported to Little Rock, three and a half hours away for her autopsy. And, and so there was stuff with that. Her dad and stepmom, you know, after discussion, they made it, you know, clear to me that they didn't, they didn't have a plot. They didn't have a cemetery in Georgia and they had no plans for that for themselves. Their, their plan was to be cremated at some point, which is really what my husband and I have talked about for ourselves. So we don't, we don't have a family plot anywhere and, and being in the military, we've lived in so many different places um, that, mm-hmm. that home is literally the place you are at that moment. Mm-hmm. So eventually, you know, after much discussion with uh, the father, collectively, we decided that it would be best to, to celebrate Hannah's life here in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. So we were able to do a visitation the hours were extended because it could only be 10 people at a time. So it was visitation from like nine to four, which for me, wow. the longest day of my life. I'm sure. The worst. And then yeah. we chose a celebrant to do a um, kind of celebration of life service in the park uh, okay. the following day. So that was done on a Sunday and we just... We had the most beautiful weather and it was, you know, people could, could socially distance. Even without COVID, I don't think we would have done anything different. Well, except maybe not nine hours or whatever that was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's... we still would have done the Parkside service. So we had people, this was the end of April, um, coming in from, from all over. My parents came from Florida. Hannah's family, roommate from Georgia, my mother from Michigan, folks from Chicago. So, you know, it was, it was scary. I think for many, um, Mm -hmm. for me at that point, I was, I was just numb and COVID didn't exist anymore. Right. And with immediate family, you know, social distancing is out of the, is, is out the window in a situation like that. So Mm -hmm. We just did the best we could, um, and, and thankfully, everyone that wanted to be here was able to be here and, and be with us, and mm-hmm. uh, and nobody, you know, became ill after that. So, mm-hmm. but it's been hard, you know. A lot yeah. of the the usual support and fellowship that you get after something like this just isn't there in a COVID world. People don't show up at your door. It, don't bring you food. And, and so, you know, once the, the last of the visitors were gone, you just feel very alone. And then even, you know, with support groups and, and things of that nature, no one was meeting in person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am, I am someone that, that needs that. I need to, to see people and sit with people. So, so that's been hard too. Yeah, that has been hard. Yeah. How have you found support? Well, your podcast. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad that's uh, been helpful. Yeah, it's been been very helpful. Um, I am seeing a grief counselor. A lot of the area support groups were getting ready to start doing in-person meetings again. But I think right now everything is is once again 
you know, kind of on hold as mm-hmm. we enter this next phase of this, yeah. this pandemic. I know that I have felt sometimes frustration when other people talk about how terrible 2020 is. And I always think to myself, you have no idea. For me, 2020 is nothing compared to 2018. But for you, you know, having a crappy 2020 is you're you're on a whole different level than 99% of people out there. And how is that? Because I would think that could be challenging. It is. My mom, actually, I, I think about her often because my mother, she lost her mom on April 11th. She lost her granddaughter on April 21st. Mm-hmm. And while she was here in Arkansas for Hannah's funeral, her husband died on the 28th. Wow. Um, so Yeah, it, it's just, so we've had a lot. Yeah, yeah that is um, a lot. And when I hear people say that, you know, again, it, and, and like I've heard you talk with other guests, you know, we sometimes discuss the things that, that we hate that people say to us, you mm-hmm. know, oh, God, got another, you know, hearing people <laughs> complain about 2020 is, is up there on my list as well, because, mm-hmm. you know, it's perspective. I sent my husband a text the other day that said I was having the worst day ever. And he sends me back, really? Like, <laughs> is yeah. that really the case? Because I know it's not. And he's right. absolutely right. No, you're right. Mm-hmm. This is not mm-hmm. the worst day ever. This is just another day. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I was walking down the hallway a few weeks ago at work. And somebody asked me how I was. And I think I said something like, oh, okay. You know, I, I never say good anymore because I'm really never good. And I yeah. just feel like that's a lie. And and she said, oh, yeah. I mean, it, something about we're all just lying now or something about that. And I just looked at her and I said, well, I've been lying for two years. And it just kind of, she just kind of went, Okay, yeah, yeah, probably shouldn't shouldn't laugh about that because that's what she did. It was like a joke. It was like, ha ha, yep, we've all been lying this year and kind of forgetting that for me, this isn't really as bad as it gets, right? right. I mean, it's, it's terrible and it's hard, but it's not the worst thing. Yeah. And I was not, there were a few things... I was not prepared for. Um, number one, I wasn't prepared for the absolute physical toll that grief takes, the sheer and absolute exhaustion. It just, I, that, I, and, and I'd been lucky, you know, up until this April, um, I'd experienced loss, but not the extent, you know, my, my grandmother, um, I was incredibly close with and, and she was 86 and I knew this was coming and right. that was, was really tough. And so to be back to back, it just has left me barely able to get through my professional day. Yeah. Uh, I also had finally gotten to a point, I, I'm, I'm 46 and I went to graduate school in, in my late thirties, early forties. I've been within my career field now for about three and a half years, I was just kind of starting to hit a professional stride and a personal stride. You know, that point where as a woman, as a mother, as a friend, as a wife, you're, you're confident in, in who you are and you kind of like the person that you are. And I feel like with Hannah's death, I am, I'm, I'm more than the person I used to be. Yes. Yes. I so, so agree with you. I feel like that was a big thing for me as well. Like I miss Andy so much, mm-hmm. but then I miss me Yeah, because I'm not the same person that I used to be. And I'm getting back there a little now, but you know, it's been well over two years and, and I feel like I'm just starting yeah. to see that. You know, I've, I've said this on the podcast before that the first support group I went to was like the second or third week. And the facilitator said she 
she really felt like herself nine years after her son died. And I went, what? Nine years? Right. I was three weeks and I, I, and the, and in my mind, I felt like she was saying, I felt like I was feeling on day, you know, 20, whatever for nine years, which is not at all what she was saying. It is just this gradual process of getting part of yourself back and having a little more time that you're smiling. Um, And maybe being able to honestly say when someone asks you how you are, good, which which I'm not there yet. And but that doesn't mean I'm not out and functioning and laughing and and living life. Um, It's just not the same. But but you are still so early. Yeah, I mean, uh, we're coming up on seven months. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then, you know, too, I think with COVID, there's been some collateral damage. There were some people that I really thought would be here that weren't. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's been hard. The biggest one has been um, my brother. Yeah. He did not come for the service or for the visitation. And I, and we've not talked about it. So that has been just so heavy. So painful. Yeah. Yeah. That is so painful. Yeah. I, I see that so much. People just really have no idea what to say. Yeah. And so instead they say nothing. Yeah. And that is worse because I can forgive people for saying the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And I do. And we have to forgive people every day for saying the wrong thing. But at least, you know, they've put an effort in, right? Even when they say that something stupid, like, well, they tried. I mean, they totally failed, but they tried. Right. So it is, it is harder. I, I feel like it's harder to give someone grace when, when it seems like they aren't trying. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I am um, a, a close friend of mine took me away last weekend. Um, she wanted to go somewhere just the two and I, two of us for the weekend. She let me just talk about Hannah and cry. And, and she expressed, you know, how much she wished she had made a different choice and that she had been there and just hearing those words, just seeing that emotion on her face, because Part of me, you know, especially in regard to my brother, I don't even know that he shed a tear for his niece Mm -hmm. because I haven't seen it or heard it. And I just want to know that she's thought of and that other people miss her as much as I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally understand that. I have certain family members, too, that have not. Yeah have not mentioned his name um, since he died. And that hurts so badly. And it makes you not want to talk to them at all. Because that's what I I, want to be able to talk about it and have people listen to me be sad and not feel like they want to change the subject and cheer me up. Right. Right. And And, And honestly, I'm sure he just has no idea what to do and is probably caring for you yeah. in the background, thinking about Hannah, thinking about you. Also, I think people get scared of thinking, wow, if it could happen to my sister, it could happen to me. Absolutely. Um, so I think those things all happen. But the problem is, and one of the goals I have on the podcast is to try to encourage people to just try. Yeah. Just try. Yeah. And if you screw up, you screw up. Yeah. You know? Yep. And then maybe even someday we can laugh about the stupid thing that you said, but, but at least you tried. Speaking of that, talking about, you know, we, we, you sometimes circle on these, these silly things that people say. The one thing that, that we were able to laugh about really pretty quickly was the funeral director, when we were planning the service, asked us if we wanted to put it on our credit cards so we could get rewards points. <laughs> I mean, okay. <laughs> I just, of all things, I mean, 
I don't know. Rewards points to me are like bonus fun points that you do something with unexpected and right. using my daughter's I just to me. Yeah, the funeral expenses to get extra bonus points. You can get a coupon to go, you know, <laughs> somewhere. But, but clearly, he had been asked this question before, addressed it before, and he felt comfortable saying it to us. But I just thought, wow, that was really ill-timed. <laughs> Yeah, it it is different. I mean, they I think they deal with it every day, and so they just think about things in a much more business like manner. I assume. I guess. And and I think it depends on the person too. Like yeah. we had an awesome funeral director. He was fantastic. And in fact, I recently interviewed a funeral director, and after that, I found the email address of our funeral director, uh-huh. and I emailed him. I sent him an email. Just basically of the write-up that I did, because I did, you know, I do a write-up every single podcast. And so I talked about him in the write-up, and I said, I just wanted to send you this. I don't know if you remember us. You know, my son Andy was killed in a car accident, and I sent it to him. And what's funny is, as I was looking for him, I saw that him on Facebook, and I saw that his brother, he's a young guy, and that his brother had died the year before at like 25 or something, you know, some were quite young. Yeah. Anyway, I so I was kind of feeling that I didn't mention it to him because, you know, I felt like I was sort of Facebook stalking him to have right. even found out this information. But he wrote back to me and he shared, he said, my, my brother actually died last year. I'm going to make sure to recommend my parents listen to your podcast. And then he said something that was so powerful to me. He said, yeah, when I go to that cemetery, which he obviously goes to often, it's a very nearby cemetery, and I'm sure they have plenty of um, services there. He said, I visit Andy. So he visits my son. So that meant, and that meant so much to me that this stranger who never knew him in life, only cared for his body after death, and cared for us in those days, those horrible days, yeah. he cared. And Andy's life actually made a difference to him enough that he stops by mm-hmm. the cemetery and mm-hmm. thinks about him. And it's very, very powerful mm-hmm. when you find things like that. And I I bet you will, as time goes on, you will yeah. get more and more little stories. We ask that that folks donate to a local animal shelter. Um, and they, they reached out to me, you know, about a month and a half after Hannah passed and said that they had had an overwhelming uh, amount of donations um, and were just amazed by the generosity. They're in the process of building a new shelter in so they're going to name the kitten room after Hannah's cat, Lilo. So it'll be Lilo's room. Oh, that is so sweet and special. Where is Lilo now? Lilo is with Hannah's roommates. Um, Mm -hmm. Again, you know, you have these, these instantaneous thoughts. And my first thought was I need to have Lilo. Um, Mm -hmm. And Lila's a rescue. Um, Hannah's roommate found her, um, you know, at the apartment complex that they live, and she was missing half of her tail and in, in really rough condition. And um, brought her in, and uh, didn't have any intention to keep her. Uh, <laughs> another one of my favorite Hannah stories. Hannah decided in 2018, after she finished her third semester of college she was ready for a change in life and she was going to move to Arkansas and start over. Okay. So that December, uh, she, she finished school. She, uh, spent Christmas with her dad and she packed up her car, got a 300 and some odd dollars speeding ticket in Mississippi. Oh no. <laughs> Made it to Arkansas. Uh, the month prior, she'd been doing all kinds of online shopping, all new bedding, all new furniture. So that was all delivered here and set up for. Uh, she transferred. She was working at Buffalo Wild Wings. She transferred to a local Buffalo Wild Wings. Two days after her arrival in Arkansas, she said, You know, Mom, I 
think I was just having a bad day when I decided I wanted to move here. <laughs> I said, okay. And seven days later, she packed up her car again and moved back to Georgia. So she, she moved home to Arkansas for nine days. <laughs> okay. And when she got back, this kitten that they were supposed to get rid of, she just decided that she was in love. And it was, it was Hannah and Lilo from that moment on. So when I asked Lexi if I could have Lilo, she said, well, I'm not going to tell you no, but I am going to tell you that she is a skittish kitty and this is the only home she's ever known. And she has her dog friend here and her other cat friend here. In my house, I have two big dogs. Uh, they're yeah. boxers, which are lovely, but they're big and dumb. And I've, I've seen have, them in the background <laughs> and on have, and off here. I have two cats um, that are rescues, but they both still have their claws. And Lilo has been declawed. So I didn't, you know, upon thinking about it, it wasn't really fair of me to pluck her out of the only home that she's ever known to bring her into my zoo. So mm -hmm. Lexi agreed that should her situation ever change where she's not able to care for Lilo, I will be the first to know. But in the meantime, I get lots of photo updates of my, my grand kitty. Very good. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. so. so how has work been for you? And when were you able to go back? I went back way too soon. Yep. I work for a lot. I'm not in private practice. We're a large physician employee group. So, you know, most of us don't ever look into our HR policies until we need them. Mm -hmm. And so my, um, they only give three days of bereavement leave. Oh my. I was able to piece together three days for my grandma, three days for my daughter, three days for my stepfather. My office manager was able to get me a couple extra days. So I took two weeks off before I went back. Oh my word. And it was way too soon. I have a mixed schedule. I'm in surgery, assisting in surgery twice a week, and I'm in clinic seeing patients twice a week. Surgery days were a little bit easier. Yeah. I work in total joints. So I wear like this spacesuit contraption and a mask. And oftentimes I could stand there and hold retractors and cry and, and nobody even noticed or if they noticed they were too polite to say anything. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was a little bit easier to get through surgery days. Clinic yeah. was harder. And I did better with new patients as opposed to my established patients that have known me for a while, because yes. those that I know, and, and again, in, in orthopedics, um, I'm seeing people because their knee hurts and their hip hurts. And uh, some I see frequently every three months for, you know, injections into their arthritic joint. And so those were the, the hardest ones to see because they would ask me how I was. And oftentimes I would, I would break down. Mm -hmm. They were incredibly kind. I have to say for a long time, I was getting a lot from my patients uh, in terms of understanding Many of them because it's primarily an arthritis clinic. They're, they're 60 and above. So they have, this, this knowledge and this life experience. And, and so have, I've really appreciated what mm -hmm. I've gotten from them. They're oftentimes they listen to me as much as I listen to them. That is really special, but you're right. They just, you know, they've experienced more and they understand grief better than yeah. people our age actually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I actually had a patient yesterday tell me that she lost her son 40 hours after birth, uh, born with a, with a heart defect and, and she's in her seventies. So this was, you know, quite some time ago and had to have open heart surgery and didn't survive. And she said, you know, at that time, they just treated you like you hadn't even had a baby. Right. And I hear things like that and it, it breaks my heart, but I still, I still battle with, whether or not 
I want to be at work. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have, especially it's, it's, and some of that is the COVID aspect thrown in. I mean, we are constantly, the recommendations are changing, that it's so up and down, um, mm-hmm. that it's just, it's a, I don't know if it's a frustration I really want to deal with at this time. So I tell well, people- Well, it, it takes a lot out of you. It, it actually yeah. sucks a lot out of you. And when you don't have that much to give- Right. It's very, very challenging. And that's what I found, like, why I ended up having to take an extended leave. And I find the same thing now with COVID, even though I'm definitely in a much better place than I was a year ago. I went back a year ago. COVID, and, like, I'm dealing with a lot of teens with anxiety, depression, mental illness. And then between that, I'm doing these insane number of COVID swaps now. (laughs) Like, I just feel like I go talk to somebody for 30 minutes about how they're cutting or, you know, having suicidal thoughts or all of this. And then I'm out in the parking lot sticking swabs in people's noses. I mean, it's, it's draining. Yeah, it's draining. And it's I, I feel patient care right now is either the best of the best or the worst of the worst. I mean, I had a, a patient the other day that I saw in the hospital and and as soon as I walk in the room, he says, I like my women uh, thin and young. You are neither. And so here it is, 7.30 in the morning, and we're starting off my day with someone insulting me. And in my old Farah, you know, yeah. Farah uh, from March of 2020, that wouldn't have been something to kind of derail me. But now it, it really takes you know, I'm in the worst shape I've ever been in my life, physically, mentally, spiritually. And I know all of those things, all of those things take work. Yes. I'm not opposed to that work. I don't, I've seen grief done badly and I mm-hmm. don't want to be that person. I want to get to maybe a better version. You know, I liked who I was before, but maybe I'll like who I'm going to become even better. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I don't, and that takes a lot, a lot of time. It does. I, I mean, I, I said to my nurse yesterday, as I'm, you know, somebody came in for kind of an unrelated problem, but what did we end up doing is talking about her mental health. And, and I said to her, I, I have no doubt in my mind now that I do this deal with this much better than I ever have. Mm-hmm. And I said, in fact, I mean, I don't want to toot my own horn or anything, but honestly, I think I do it better than any other physician in the office right now. Mm-hmm. Like I just get it more. Mm-hmm. I get the depths that you can be in. I understand yeah. it so much better. And I think I can give them really good care. But then I said, but that doesn't mean I can. Yeah. Because it it physically takes a lot out of you every time. And even though I feel like I can do a better job than someone else in my office, sometimes it's just too much for me. Right. So I anyway, I would I I think that you will get to that point where you will find that you are probably better than you were. But even when you get there, that's not always enough because you still have to have some leftover for you personally and for your own family and to use it all up mm-hmm. clinically. Yeah, it can be so, so right. challenging. So right mm-hmm. now I'm just at a, I'm going to do this till I don't want to do this anymore. And I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know when that point will be we have kind of some, some mandated stop blocks coming up. They've just limited uh, what we can do in regards to inpatient surgical procedures. So I'm hoping between that and the holidays to, to just have a little bit more time, um, you know, for me and for my family, because right now I'm, I'm just surviving. It takes everything I have just to get through my Monday through Friday. And, uh, 
you know, and then all of the ridiculous things that still have to get done, you know, the, the laundry and, and all of the, mm-hmm. the housekeeping aspects of life. You know, I, I just, the other day it was, I just had the most ridiculous thought. I couldn't believe that, you know, in April, my daughter had died and I, I still had to clean litter box. Like, how could that even be fair? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I know. I, I, it does. It just seems crazy that you still have to do this kind of stuff that seems so stupid, but you yeah. just have to do it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Well, I, know that we are with you as a community and, and understand and get that because it is just unbelievably difficult and just doing these little things that used to seem so easy just yeah. now aren't. And I hope that your friends and family listen to this and start thinking about little ways that they might be able to help you because that is huge. If somebody can do just things that seem super little and minor, I mean, I, I remember somebody just saying, hey, I'm going to Costco. Do you need something? And that was enormous for me that they picked up like four items at Costco because, of course, that had been weighing on me. It had been in the back of my mind. I really need to go get these things from Costco, but I just don't have the energy to get up and go do it. And I I feel, and you sit there in that place for a long time and Mm -hmm. people don't understand that. They think, I think a lot of times people are like six months, ah, she's probably good now, you know? And that's like, at six months, the numbness is just starting to wear off. Right. So the pain actually gets worse, I think. Right. I, I felt like I, sure. I have had so many days. I just wish I could wave a great big sign that says I am not okay. Yeah. Uh, and part of the problem is I am that. I have always been that person, the one to reach out in the planner and, you know, a super type A um, I spend all kinds of time trying to make it seem like I'm not type A, but I'm, I'm super type A and like to think that I can do it all and handle it all. And so I think people just assume that just like everything else in my life, oh, she'll tackle it and through mm-hmm. it without really just recognizing that this is so different from anything else that the, that life can throw at you. I mean, really and truly, I thought the worst thing that could happen to us was when my husband broke his back a year ago. And now that is a mere speed bump. I mean, Mm -hmm. it it doesn't even seem like a big deal. Right. Right. And I think it's important for you just to try to be brave enough to ask for help, even though that is, that is so so un, and that is just not part of your character. I mean, I can tell it's not part of your character to just, to ask people like out of the blue, I need you to do this for me. But some ways that's where we end up being. And that's what I've talked about before about how the griever ends up having to be the teacher. And when you have to be the teacher, sometimes you have to say, this is what I need from you. Yeah. It's hard though, because I think all of us expect others to just know. And like you've said in the past, when people say, Oh, call me if you need something, we will never make that call. Yep. Yep. I I can, as soon as you said that to me now, I can think of so many people at my front door dropping something off for me Mm -hmm. and saying, call you if you need me. And as I'm closing the door, I'm thinking to myself, that is never going to happen. Yep. So it is, it's a challenge to yourself especially now I think in COVID when people are less likely to go out of their way and do some right. of this stuff that maybe it is time to try, try, try to push yourself. Yeah. Um, and for you, I just hope that so many of your friends listen to this and start <laughs> thinking about how they can help you because yeah. I, I would love that. I would love if this gives you a little bit of help. Yeah. Well, it's helped just talking to you again, as, as all of us have said, we like nothing more in this world than to be able to talk about our children. Mm -hmm. To someone who truly wants to listen. Yes. Yeah, that's it. And if I, I mean, if I could make a profession out of doing that and maybe that's what I need to 
to think of for my next act. I, you know, I wish I could find a way to just spend all day talking about Hannah, but you know, the love is on and, and I, and I hate that, but I, I have a family and I have other children and, and we've had happy things, you know, um, yeah. our son, our son got married in August. So, and everyone, you know, in spite of the pandemic, all of our adult children are, are doing well. We keep offering them financial support and they all keep reassuring us that they're fine. So I think that tells us that we did something right somewhere along the way. And, um, I'm not looking forward to the holidays, but I'm not dreading them. Okay. It's just, it's a whole year of firsts. And yes. We've, I've already decided that April 21st of 2021, I don't, don't want to be in my house. I don't want to be where it happened. So we're going to find somewhere to go. And I don't know where that well, is. Well, and you know, that day I will be... I don't know what I'll be doing either because that will be Andy's birthday. So that I know was a reason that you wrote to me too, finding yeah. out that that was, that was Andy's birthday. So yeah, mm -hmm. hard day all around. Yep. Yep. It will be. Yeah. All right. Well, know that I'll be thinking of you. I appreciate and Thank that. you so much for sharing Hannah Christine thank with you. us. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcy at andysmom.com. Be sure to visit the webpage, andysmom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.